Amen. Well, we are at the end of our series called The Incredible Life. And uh, we've said a few things in this series so far. And one of the things we've said about The Incredible Life is that it is a God-centered, others-focused existence. That if we can sum up what The Incredible Life looks like, it's that very thing. It is a God-centered and others-focused existence. It's this idea that we have a horizontal relationship with God, a, a relationship that we have the opportunity to give God all that we are, all that we have and all that we are. And then from that, we also have the privilege and honor to love others as ourselves. That the blessings of God, the spiritual blessings of God, and even the physical blessings of God, all of that abundance, the grace, the love, the mercy, our wealth, all of those things are not meant to come and sit here, but they're meant to pass through us. That we have this privilege, that everything we own, everything we have has this opportunity to go out, not just sit and terminate on us, but to go out to others as well. That instead of chasing the American dream, we could chase the incredible life. You see, I think there's a big difference between the American dream and the incredible life. And God is calling us out from that. I had the opportunity uh, this week, I was... uh, uh, communicating with uh, actually the pastor over at Hope Community, Skip Allen. Uh, We're good friends, and uh, I was just sharing with him what God was doing with this series. And uh, he he turned me to a song that he was actually just listening to. And I love the words of this song. It's a song by a musical artist, artist named Ben Rector. And he says this in the song, This American dream is not what it seems. Maybe we're still breathing But we're all asleep. Pretty cars and pretty houses, pretty people on parade. If this dream is what you're after, then dreaming's where you'll stay. Because I want to live until I die. Don't let the devil bury me alive. When my heart stops, let me go home. Don't let the suburbs kill my heart and soul. This is what we're talking about here. That God has so much more for us than this American dream. God has so much for us than retirement. God has so much for us, more for us, than just getting by with the day to day. That the incredible life is not based on our outer circumstances. It's based on our inner choices. That we have the privilege each and every day to choose to live an incredible life or to choose to be a victim of the circumstances that surround us. And we all know people. We know people that when we look at their lives, and maybe you're one of these people, but we know people that when we look at their lives, we look and say, that is incredible living. We just honored Miss Betty this morning for that very life, right? There's so many other people that I think about when I think about this. I think of Leon and Ginger Smith. Right now, they're over there with a connect group with fifth grade boys, and they are actually leading my fifth grade boy. And you want to know what's pretty interesting about that? They led me when I was that fifth grade boy. This is what I'm talking about. People that have just devoted their lives for the sake of God and for the sake of others. 
I think of Coach Dalton. He's, he's a, the, he actually won Teacher of the Year over at Jefferson School. And he is the first person we see every morning when we drop our kids off for school there at Jefferson. And it doesn't matter if it's a fabulous Friday or a mundane Monday. Coach Dalton's going to have a smile on his face. And he is going to be ready to receive my child. And he always brings laughter and joy at the first part of the morning when everybody's tired and everybody doesn't want to speak. It's those little things, those little consistent, faithful things that you can see in people. I, I don't, hope I don't embarrass them when I say this, but I, I'll tell you another young man that's just secretly incredible. And, uh, and it's someone that literally comes every morning and every single Sunday morning, he's going to bring me some gum, some chewing gum. Every single morning. My man Seth over here. Every single morning, he brings chewing gum to me and just lets me have that. And I don't know if he's trying to tell me something about my breath. <laughs> but here's the thing. He does that faithfully every single week. In fact, last week, uh, I didn't get a chance to talk to him before our gathering, and I, I didn't know if he'd remember or not. I wasn't expecting it, but I just didn't know. And at the end of the gathering, right after the 930, I walk off stage, and this is what I see right there in my seat. He had already had to leave. <laughs> he had two pieces sitting there for me, ready to go. Here's the thing, guys. It doesn't have to be the big, spectacular, give a check for $30,000 to Nepal kind of thing. That we have the privilege with the inner choices that we make to live the incredible life. And so today, I kind of want to wrap this series up with talking about something that's very inner and very personal. And something that we don't see out on the outside. If the incredible life is based on inner choices, then most of the incredible life happens in the secret places of the heart. It happens... In the secret places of the heart where no one really sees. That the incredible life is more than just doing a lot of great things outwardly. It's something, something happening on the inside of us. And there lies within each believer this tension in life to either be superficially proud or secretly incredible. That each one of us, if we're believers in the room, this is what we're facing every single day. To either live a life of superficial, proud, pride. This idea that on the outside, on the veneer, everything looks okay. But we're proud inside. Or to live a life being secretly incredible. And each one of us faces this on a day-to-day -day basis. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to do something a little weird this morning. We're going to turn from Mark chapter 9 to Mark chapter 10. So hopefully that's like one page or two pages in your Bible. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 and 10 this morning. And here in these passages that we're going to look at, you're going to find something very similar. A similar story that's both in Mark chapter 9 and also Mark chapter 10. And what we see here is we're going to see what the superficially proud look like. The superficially proud. And here's the weird thing. Here's the catch to that. It's not going to be a Pharisee. And it's not going to be some little guy standing up in a tree. 
You know who the superficially proud are in the passage we're reading this morning? It's Jesus' very own disciples, the 12, like the, the top people, right? The very ones that are going to change the world through their obedience to Christ later are in this passage some of the most proud and prideful people there are. So look with me in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, before we start reading, you got to kind of know what's going on here. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and Jesus takes advantage of just about every opportunity he gets. And on his way traveling with his disciples, he is telling them some very serious things. He's telling them how he's going to die. He's telling them that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to die, And this is the path that he is on. And in the midst of all that, look at what the disciples are focused on. This is crazy. Mark chapter 9, look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them. When Jesus was in the house, they finally get to the house. He asked them, what are you arguing about? What were you arguing about on the road? Now, does Jesus know what they're arguing about? Absolutely. He knows what they're arguing about. He always asks a question. When he asks a question, he's wanting those people that he's asking the question to to kind of think about what the answer is. So he says, hey, what were y'all arguing about on the road? You remember that that walk when we were talking about my death and about my sacrifice and about the fact I'm going to be betrayed soon? Um, When all that was going on, you guys seemed to be mumbling and, and seemed frustrated. What exactly were you guys talking about? Look at verse 34. But they, but these disciples, they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now think about how, honestly, it's sad, but it's also a little humorous if we're honest. This man that they're following is talking about his death and they're not even paying attention to that. They're thinking, who's the greatest out of us? And what's so sad about this story, and honestly kind of funny, is that not only do they do this in Mark chapter 9, they do the very same thing in Mark chapter 10. So look at, just flip the page, look at Mark chapter 10. This isn't the only time this happens. Look in verse 32 with me. In the middle of verse 32, it says, Again, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. So Jesus is doing the same thing. He's telling them about his death and he's going into a lot of detail. He's given a lot of painful details about what's about to happen to him. And look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, we know where this is headed. In fact, it's kind of funny where this is headed. He's telling them about his death, and they're just sitting there. They're not even paying attention to the things he said. They're just like, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Hey, hey, teacher, will you do something for us? Will you do whatever we ask of you? 
And so look at verse 36. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He already knows again, right? Jesus knows. Maybe he just wants them to hear how stupid they sound. But listen to how the disciples answer. These two disciples. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. When we get to heaven, when this is all over, we just heard about your death. In fact, the only thing we paid attention to was the fact that three days later you're going to rise. So when that happens and when we're in heaven, when all this is over, we want to be the guys sitting right next to you on both sides. Now this is crazy, guys. Like literally, in, within just a chapter, they didn't learn the lesson. Within a chapter, they're still dealing with the same, the same problem. Can you imagine Jesus in this moment? Like, it's like one of those things when you have a child and you tell the child, hey, please don't do this, or hey, stay away from that. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And then, like, literally five minutes later, they're doing the very same thing. Jesus has got to be feeling this right now. He's like, what is going on? Like, did these guys not learn anything? What's the problem that you see here with these disciples? They have an issue of pride. They have a deep desire to be first and to be great. And this is the problem with the superficially proud. That they can look great on the outside. They can do all kinds of things in the church. They can do wonderful things. They can be talented. They can be skilled. They can stand on this stage and preach. They can stand on this stage and sing. They can greet you at the door. They can go on mission trips. They can spend all kinds of money helping the the least of these. But here's the thing. It could be that there's just superficial there. And the trick of all of this, the danger in all of this is that for a large part of that, it stays hidden. It's in the inner choices. It's in the secret places of our heart. Whether we are doing what we're doing for God's glory or whether we're doing what we're doing because we just want to make a name for ourselves. And this is kind of sad because these disciples, they were doing stuff, right? They were serving God. They were doing all the right things. They were walking with Jesus. And yet, they had this deep desire to be first and great. That every single one of us, if we're honest, we deal with this same temptation. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, that doesn't matter. That there's this temptation that rises up within us to want to be first and to want to be Great, and this was, this was the problem since the beginning, since Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. What did, what did the serpent say to them? They said, hey, you eat this fruit, you're going to be just like God. You're going to be first, you're going to be great. And, and they fell into the temptation. That we follow into this temptation every single day. We, we're faced with this temptation every single day. The temptation, the desire to be first and great. And so here's what it looks like. For some, maybe it's this. Maybe your desire is to be first and great in your competition. And the word here around that is this idea of ego. That for some of us in the room, man, ego plays a part in our lives. Look at verse 34, nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 34 again. Look at what it says. But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about who was greatest. Jesus is pouring his heart out, and they're having a spitting contest. 
in the midst of all this. And you can, like, it doesn't tell us how the argument went, how the debate went, how you saw these egos flesh out, but we can kind of use our glorified imagination, right? I'm sure one disciple, you know, maybe stepped up or started saying, hey, did you see the other week what I did with that demon-possessed man? Like, man, I, I took care of that. Jesus didn't even have to show up in that. I just took care of that. And then you probably, you know, maybe you see James and John and they're sitting there and saying, yeah, but you know what? We left our father to follow Jesus. I mean, that was a big deal. We left our father, we left the, bit, the family business to follow Jesus. And then Matthew's probably over here and saying, Father, I don't want to hear it. Do you know how much money I used to make? Like I made all kinds of money and I gave up that big lifestyle and income and I decided to follow Jesus and I gave up all this money. You guys just gave up some fish. And then Judas is sitting there and he's thinking to himself, you guys have no idea how financially difficult this is to run this ministry. I mean, he's always doing crazy stuff. Jesus is always doing radical stuff. You guys just don't know. I'm the greatest. And this is what we see. We see these egos clashing. This desire, this competition between who's the best. And guys, there's nothing wrong with competition in like the sports arena, right? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, our children's pastor, I remember one time going and playing him in racquetball and he did something that was kind of embarrassing. He literally, Corby ties his shoes together and plays me in racquetball and still beats me. Pretty embarrassing. But here's the thing. We're not talking about that. When it comes to that kind of competition, we're not talking about that. What we're talking about is in the spiritual world, there's no place for competition. And guys, we, we have to be careful so hard with this because it's not even just people against people. It's church versus church, right? It's like this idea of, hey, we've got the better church because we do this and we do this and we do this. And this church over here, they're okay, but they don't do this or they don't do that. And, and, and this, it breeds this competition of who's the best church or who's the best believer. And here's the thing. We have kind of refined ourselves since, the, uh, since 30 AD. We've kind of refined ourselves. We might not argue with ourselves, among ourselves, about who's the greatest. But if we were honest, we still kind of have those arguments in our own heart, don't we? When we stand in the mirror and we're getting ready in the morning, when we're taking a shower, is it not so easy for ideas to creep into our head that say to us, you're the best, you're the greatest? In fact, for some of us, we gauge our Christian walk based on if we're just slightly better than the next guy. Last week, we, we did a message that was kind of difficult, to be honest with you. And um, I know it was convicting for me, and uh, you know, maybe it was convicting in your life. And, and here's what I know to be true, because this is the temptation I faced on the way home. I asked the question, hey, how much is enough? And we were talking about wealth, we were talking about materialism, we were talking about all this desire to get more. And, and, and here's the temptation that some of us face. We face the temptation of saying to ourselves and in the face of conviction, okay, I'm not as bad as the Joneses. I, I have less than the Joneses. I give more than the Joneses. And because of that, I'm really okay with God. That we take conviction and we really make conviction all about the fact that we're not as bad as the next guy. 
And you see this with kids too, right? You get two kids together, you're, you're having to convict or you're having to discipline both of them. What do they do? They turn on the next one. I didn't do as bad as that one did. And this is what it looks like, the spiritual competition to be greater than everyone else around us. And not only to be greater, but to feel that, to, to say, I'm the best. This ego that drives us. And this is a form of pride. For some believers in the room, maybe it's not that. Maybe for some, it, the temptation is this deep desire to be first and great in your agendas. In your agendas. And it's this word that we use a lot and that we hear a lot called manipulation. Manipulation. Look at verse, uh, flip over a page to chapter 10 and look at how these disciples, James and John, are talking to Jesus. In verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And then look at what they say in verse 37. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Now, here's the part that we haven't gotten to yet, but, but we're coming, which kind of need to know it. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus is going to come down on them. He's going to rebuke them for this desire to want to be first. We're going to get to that in just a second, but you kind of have to know what's going on here. He's going to rebuke them in Mark chapter 9. Notice the manipulation here with James and John. Notice the wheels turning in their head. Can you hear it? They're saying, hey, Jesus... We know we can't be first. We got that. Like you told us that in chapter 9. I get that now. We know we can't be first. You're the top dog. But can we be next? We know we can't be first, but we want to be next. We want to be the next people in line. It's manipulation at its finest. This secret agenda that these guys have. And we know it's secret because look at what it says in verse 41. When the ten, the other ten disciples heard about this, they became indignant or angry with James and John. They didn't know this was happening. They, they clearly pulled Jesus to the side and started this little game of manipulation. And for some of us in the room, some of us are really good at being manipulators. And maybe you'll say this. Maybe you'll say, I'm not a manipulator. I'm an outcome engineer. <laughs> Here's the thing. For some of us, and I'm saying this, and as I'm saying this, I, I, I'm just telling you, this is a big problem for me. That I tend to get into this manipulation mode. This desire to want to have my agenda put First and fourth and great. And the question is, are you a manipulator? For some of you, you might say, well, I'm not a manipulator as much as I'm, a, I'm an influencer. I just influence people. Here's the questions to ask. Here's the questions to ask if you're a manipulator versus an influencer. Here's some questions to ask next time. First of all, am I lying on purpose or being deceitful on purpose? If you are, you're manipulating. Does the outcome of what I'm trying to get benefit me more than it benefits others? And the third question to ask if I'm a manipulator or not, 
am I convicted after I do this? <laughs> because here's the thing. If the Spirit of God is living in us, even if we don't have verifiable biblical evidence, okay, is this a manipulation? Is this an influence? Here's the truth. God will convict us. He's not going to leave us where we're at, and it's going to come really clear what God's trying to do in our lives. And for some of us, when it comes to this idea of being superficially proud, this is a big problem for us. That we have this desire to push our agenda at all costs. The desire to be first and great. The third desire that you see in the superficially proud, and maybe it's one of your desires this morning, is to be first and great in your position. To be first and great in your position. And the word there is the word noticed. Noticed. Look at verse 36 again. Jesus says, hey, what do you want me to do for you, James and John? Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left in glory. Jesus, a chapter before, is going to, to call this out. But look at what's happening here. At the heart of every prideful person is a need to be in a high position and to be noticed. We want to be recognized for who we know, what we do, and how we look. And our culture helps us facilitate this so well. It's why some, so many people are on Instagram. It's why so many people are on Facebook. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with catching up with friends. But for some, it's just this place that we can push how awesome and great we are. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, even Outback Steakhouse. I know, that sounds weird. Here, here's, here's what happened the other day. This is crazy. Me and my wife were eating a meal at Outback, and earlier while we were in the waiting area, uh, a gentleman from our church um, was, uh, we were just kind of chatting with them and talking with him, and uh, we went and sat down, we ate our meal, and after we finished our meal, um, we, we asked for the check, and the waitress comes up, and she says, someone's already taken care of your meal. And, and we said, oh, wow, that's awesome. Who, who did that? She, and she said, we, well, he doesn't want to be known who did it. And so we start thinking, well, maybe it's this person that we talked to earlier. And, and then she says, but I can tell you this, he's sitting right over there. And like she points in the direction. And so, you know, at the end of our meal, we're like, we're going to just go say thank you. And I know he didn't want to be noticed. He tried to not be noticed. He tried to be secretly incredible. But we're going to just go say hey to him. So we walked up and we're talking to him and we just pat him on the back saying, man, thank you so much. That was such a blessing. Thank you for doing that for us. And while we're there, the manager comes out. And so the manager comes out, and the manager's kind of loud and boisterous and kind of trying to make a big scene about this man paying for our meal, which we were very grateful for that. And so the man starts up, and he's like, we just want to thank you so much for doing this. This is such an act of service and greatness and blah, 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 blah. And he says, we want to do something special for you. And so I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. Maybe they're going to comp the meal. Maybe they're going to give this man a free appetizer. And so the man digs in his pocket, and I'm thinking, okay, this is going to be something nice for this gentleman that paid for a meal. And he, he pulls out this little pin that says Outback on it and sits it on the man's table right there. And me and Crystal just kind of look at each other, and we're like, what's that man supposed to do with this pin? Like, 
what did the Outback manager think? That the man was going to just wear the pin? Like, can you imagine the man wearing the pin and going out and, and they're like, hey, Bob, how was, how was uh, your weekend? It was great. It was awesome. Hey, what's that pin about? I paid for a guy's lunch the other day and they gave me this pin. I'm wearing it now proudly. Like, who does that, right? Like, we're, nobody does that. But here's the thing, guys. Like, for some of us, we buy into that kind of mindset. We're like, hey, somebody's going to award me for this. Someone's going to notice me for this. I'm going to wear that noticeability proudly. And for some of us, we bought into this idea of, hey, I need to be noticed. We have this desire to be noticed. And for a lot of us, the superficially proud, for, for a lot of the superficially proud, they, they really, if we're honest, they wear capes. They wear capes. And, and, and here's how this kind of looks. Like, when I grew up, I used to love capes. Like, I used to love superheroes wearing capes. And I myself had a cape. And I walked around our neighborhood for years with a cape on. In fact, here's a picture of me in the neighborhood. If you lived in Poplar Circle, that was me with my staff. I was like Moses the superhero. In fact, we got a close-up picture of this. Let's see what this looks like. That, that was me right there. Umbro shorts, sword tucked in. This, this was my life. And I thought I was cool with my cape. But here's the thing about capes. They're super impractical. They're super impractical. In fact, me and my best friend, John Hewitt, we'd get in these little wars with each other. And all John would have to do is just grab my cape. He just would be yanking me around on the cape. He'd flip it over my head where I couldn't see. Why? Because capes are impractical. They don't do what you want them to do. And when it comes to living the incredible life God has called us to, capes get in the way. In fact, look at this. Wearing a cape hinders your hands. Wearing a cape gets in the way of what you're trying to do. It hinders your hands. It creates tripping hazards. It's so easy to trip on a cape. We always see Batman flying through the city on some kind of suspension. But if you've ever seen Batman try to walk up a, a flight of steps, it probably doesn't work too good because he gets tripped up. And here's the other thing. Wearing a cape makes you look ridiculous. It makes you look ridiculous. My son, my two-year-old, has come into the world of capes just like I did. And we had some people, actually it was our worship pastor, Wesley Green. He brought over several capes for my son. And I actually have them here this morning. Here's some of the capes that my son likes to wear. And, and here's the thing. He's kind of gone crazy with the capes. Because every time we leave the house, he's got to get these capes on. So, like, before we leave, he's like, all right, I got a cape here. And he's like, okay, here's my, here's my other cape that I'm going to wear. And here's my other cape. And this has become a normal for us. In fact, we were at the ball field yesterday. Guess what? He's wearing a cape. And here's the thing. Like, he's gotten to the point where every time we go anywhere, he wants a cape. But he doesn't just want one cape. He says it. I want all my capes. And he literally sometimes is walking out of the house with three or four capes hanging off of him. And it's kind of a cute thing for a two-year-old, but let's be honest. It's ridiculous looking when adults wear capes. 
And for some of us, our pride, our superficial pride has bogged us down in a bunch of capes. That people would see how great I am. And you don't realize that the very thing you think is going to make you look incredible is the very thing that hinders your hands, that hinders what you're trying to do for God. It's the very thing that trips you up. It's the very thing that makes you come out looking ridiculous. The superficially proud may come out looking flashy, but eventually it won't end well. There was a a prominent pastor, preacher, teacher, apologetic man that came out recently, Robbie Zacharias, a man that everyone thought was one way and actually comes out looking a totally different way. And what no one saw in the inner secret place was that there was ego That there was manipulation. That in his heart there was this desire to be noticed. And this man passes away. And then it comes out after he passes away. That the whole time he was wearing a cape. A cape that even after his death hindered what he was trying to accomplish in life. Tripped him up into all kinds of sin. And ultimately, even after death, has made him look foolish. And I'll be honest with you. Like when I look at his life, and I listen to this man. I I watched his sermons. I listened to his podcasts. I read his books. It scares me to death. To think that my life could get to a place where I am superficially proud, superficially living one way, and behind closed doors and in the secret place, I'm getting tripped up in sin. I'm getting tripped up in my own ego. I'm getting tripped up in this desire to be noticed and flashy. And at the end of my life, or after the end of my life, I could come out looking ridiculous and and just literally just hindering the name of Jesus. We have to be so careful not to live in this superficial, cape-wearing world. We've got to step over into the secretly incredible life. So what does it look like to be secretly incredible? It's not a desire for first and great. It's not that desire. No, it's a devotion to be last and least. It's a devotion to be last and least. It's not going to be a desire because a desire, it's not a natural desire to want to be last and least. No, it's a devotion. It's saying, Lord, I choose to walk on a path of last and least. That being first in the kingdom of God means being last. Last in line, last in ego, last in being noticed. And here's the question. Are you okay with doing something for God and no one knowing This is what it means to be secretly incredible. To be last and least in your schedule. To be last and least in your schedule. This idea of being constantly interrupted. 
Look at uh, chapter 9 again, verse 35. Look at how Jesus gently rebukes his disciples. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me only, but the one who sent me. I love this example. Jesus uses a child as the example in this story. And it's interesting because for us, it's kind of a, a different culture, a different way of life. But during this time, children had zero value in the ancient world. They offered nothing to society and therefore had little to no value. Now, obviously, parents love their children. We love our children, but let's be honest. It, it kind of works the same way with little children in our home. I can't expect my littlest child to go out and cut the grass. It would be great if they did, but they don't. We're trying to teach chores now, and even the chores we're teaching them, I'm just going to be honest, it would be easier for me to just do it myself because I can do it about five times faster than they can. And you parents know what I'm talking about. Children, physically speaking, not, not spiritually, not emotionally, but physically speaking, children don't offer a lot, little children don't offer a lot of physical value to our livelihood and to our lives. They are, and again, I'm saying this with love towards my children, but they are in some ways a drain on our schedule because there's not a moment that they don't mind interrupting, right? There's not a moment that they don't mind interrupting. And living the secretly incredible life is living a life of constant interruptions. It's living a life saying, I've got my schedule, but I'm willing to let my life be interrupted for the sake and the glory of God, no matter what comes in the door. And for a lot of us, this idea stresses us out because we like our schedule. For many of us, we will never know the incredible life because we have a schedule slammed full of chasing the incredible life. But what God is saying is the incredible life doesn't happen a week from now when you go on vacation or a month from now when you make that killer presentation at work. No, the incredible life happens when Joe, somebody walks in the door and needs help with something. The interruptions of life. This is where the secretly incredible people live. Being willing to take on the, the interruptions of life. The secretly incredible also have a desire, a devotion to be least and last in their preservation. In their preservation, it's the word sacrifice. It's this idea of sacrifice that for many of us in the room, we know this, like our world is filled with us desiring to preserve our lives. Like I, I, I can't tell you how many times in prayer time and in prayer meetings, I hear this all the time. And Lord, just give us traveling mercies. I mean, man alive, we pray for traveling mercies more than probably anything else we pray for. And there's nothing wrong with praying that, but we are fixated on our safety. We're fixated on how safe we can live. And we're trying to preserve that life. And it goes far beyond seatbelts. 
It goes far beyond locked doors at our home. No, we're not only trying to preserve our life, we're trying to preserve our lifestyle. And it's this preserving of this. And even the disciples, this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to preserve some kind of lifestyle. Chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus says them. He he tries to set them straight and says, hey, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? He he talks about really the two sacraments of the church, communion and baptism. But he's not really talking about juice you're going to drink and water you're getting dunked in. He's talking about something a little deeper than that. And they don't get it. Look at verse 39. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with what these disciples don't realize is that their little preservation of their little life and their little lifestyle is about to come to an abrupt end. That these men will soon happily and joyfully sacrifice everything for Christ. James is stabbed to death. Thomas is speared to death. Andrew is going to be tied to a cross and going to live two days on a cross preaching the gospel. John is going to be boiled alive in oil and somehow survive that and go be exiled for the rest of his life. Peter's going to be crucified upside down. All of these guys are going to experience a taste physically of what Jesus will experience. And because of their love for Christ, they would give up on being first and great, and they will eventually learn this lesson and sacrifice everything for the kingdom of God, except for one. Except for one. The only one that didn't do this is the one that tries so desperately to preserve his little lifestyle. And he does that With 30 pieces of silver. That this preservation of life, this preservation of lifestyle, man, it gets us in trouble. And I'm not saying don't wear your seatbelt. What I'm saying is that there are greater things that God is concerned about than your little lifestyle. And the secretly incredible, they understand this. They understand the meaning of the word sacrifice. The secretly incredible also have a devotion to be last and least in their authority. It's the idea of service. Jesus says in chapter 10 verse 40, But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Basically what this verse is talking about is during the Roman rule, a Roman soldier could say jump and a Jew was supposed to say how high. That this was the authority structure in place. And these disciples were thinking in their mind when they hear the word kingdom, when they hear the word kingdom of God, they're thinking, hey, I'm going to be like that Roman soldier one day. I'm going to be the guy in authority that says jump and those people say how high. This is their idea of what it looked like. And then Jesus says this in verse 43, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave Of all. Jesus 
Jesus is giving them a new picture to follow. Something that is so counterintuitive to what our minds are thinking. That to be the leader, to be the one in charge means we're the ones that all the authority rests. We're the ones that all this happened. And Jesus is saying, actually, it's backwards. If you're going to be that, you're going to serve. You're going to allow others to go before you. Jesus completely flips the incredible life. That it's not about how high you can get on the ladder of authority and headship. It's really about serving. And he would make the ultimate sacrifice and make the ultimate example of what serving looks like. In verse 45, he says, for even the son of man, the servant of man, Jesus's favorite title for himself, son of man, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus would go on to live this title out and he is calling us to live the same title out, to not live this superficially proud life, but to come and step over into a world of living out the life of being secretly incredible. You see, the, the, the superficially proud, they wear capes, but the secretly incredible, they wear Christ. They wear Christ. Most of us, if we're honest, will never face an end like the disciples faced. But the question is not, how will you die? In fact, the whole question for this whole series is not really about how you will die. The question for this whole series is, how are you going to live? How will you live? Will you live last and least? Or will you squander a life wearing the silly capes of ego manipulation and wanting to be noticed? One of my favorite scenes every year when the Olympics happen. One of my favorite scenes is after an Olympian wins one of their events. I love what happens next. Because then they go and they wrap themselves in the flag of their country. In fact, we have a picture of this on the screen. They wrap themselves in the flag of their country. Why is that? Because they're not there to represent and make a name for themselves. That's not what the Olympics is about. The Olympics is about representing your nation. And what's so cool about these athletes, these Olympians, is when they win big and they break records that have never been broken before, they choose to wrap themselves in the flag of their country. And what they're saying with that is, hey, We are here to represent our country. We are here to give the credit to our country. We are here to make our country look great. And this is what we have the opportunity to do in the secretly incredible life. Not to make ourselves look great, not to make ourselves look awesome, but to say to God, I want to wrap myself in you, Jesus. I want people, when they see me, to really not see me, I want them to see Christ. I want them to see the sacrifice that Jesus made on their behalf through my life. And guess guess what, guys? This is all secret. Here's the thing, after a message like today, we won't know if you do this or not. Only God will know the truth. Only God will know what's going to happen in the secret places of your heart. 
But here's what the incredible life is. The secretly incredible life is remembering that you were not made to be somebody. You were not made to be somebody. You were made to know somebody. You were not made to be somebody. You were made to know somebody. Jesus is talking about this difficult path of the secretly incredible. A place with no comfy capes and no personal glory. A place and a path where Christ gets every bit of the glory. If you would, go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. The question this morning is which path are you on? Are you on a path for yourself, a path of ego, a path of manipulation, a path of wanting to be noticed? Or are you on a path where you are wearing Christ? You don't mind the interruptions. You don't mind the sacrifice. You don't mind the serving because you know that Jesus has done every bit of that. He didn't just tell us to do it. He set the ultimate example on our behalf. And now we have the privilege and the joy of following in his footsteps. So what's happening in the secret place of your heart? Are you superficially proud or are you secretly incredible? Where do you find yourself this morning? As we stand to our feet, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this moment we have together, God, to just hear from you, Jesus. I pray, God, that you would just bind down this desire to be first and great, Lord. God, that when we're faced with that temptation, we can say no to that because you said no to that, God. And, Lord, that we can live a life going last and being least and being okay with that because we know, Jesus, that's where you're at, Lord. That's where we find you, Lord, setting the example on our behalf. God, we thank you, Lord, for the incredible life that you have promised us, Lord. God, it's not just a life for the end of life. It's a life that we get to live right now, Lord. Help us each day to take hold of that. Father, we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name.